is the WTF Bach Podcast. The podcast about Johann Sebastian Bach, brought to you by his prodigal son, WTF Bach. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. Why don't you let WTF Bach guide you? And now, here's WTF Bach. Hey, it's Evan Shinners here, Listener's Choice Part 2. In the last episode, time was slipping by, and I made the executive decision to split the episode into two parts, which means that today I have an entire episode devoted to one piece, cantata number 147. It feels good, though, to have an entire episode to talk about this cantata, because as opposed to a five-minute organ piece or an eight-minute toccata, well, a cantata is a whole lot of music, so you oughta listen, or else I gotta keep rhyming. Welcome to the WTF Bach Podcast. Okay, so cantata number 147. I think this is the first time we've discussed anything from the cantatas on this podcast, which is long overdue since the bulk of the master's output are these cantatas. Now, the history of the cantata is complicated, too complicated to delve into even in one entire episode, so let's just agree that the cantata is essentially an opera. It's an opera without costumes or sets bunch of instruments, bunch of singers, and the story it tells is either a message that deals with God or some sort of mythology. One is known as the sacred, the other is known as the secular cantata. But secular cantatas can also mention God. They do. In fact, this secular word has been a thorn in Bach understanding. Bach never really wrote secular music because really for Bach, all of his music, even something that has no text and was never intended to be performed in church, is sacred. In German, they are called the Weltlicher Kantaten, the worldly cantatas, as in not dealing with that which is above. But this, to quote Christoph Wolff, this term, secular cantatas, would have been entirely foreign to Bach and to his time. It came into use only in the late 19th century and has led to an almost fatal polarization in the assessment of Bach's secular and sacred vocal music. The repercussions of this can be felt to the present day. Perhaps one way for us to understand the difference is that one type of cantata was put in church, the other in different parts of the city, such as a university or a government building. But even there, those sacred cantatas could be performed in the university. But let's just leave it with that idea that one was performed in a church and the other was performed in a government building. Now, why would Bach write a cantata? Did he wait for the muse to strike up his pen? Did he think, ah, a cantata, that, yeah, that sounds like a nice project, maybe I'll try. No, no, no. There was an occasion, be it a Sunday in a church, a feast day, a birthday wedding or funeral of a noble person, the opening of a new building. There would be an occasion and there would need to be music and cantare, cantata from cantare, there would need to be singing, words talking about what was going on. And whose job was it to write music? to these words, but Mr. Bach employed by that very town as a composer. So if there wasn't music, Mr. Bach would be without a job. Now, where did the words come from? Where would Bach find the text for such an occasion? Well, there was often a poet with whom Bach worked personally, frequently older texts from a theologian or a poet from, say, a hundred years ago. Of course, there's the scripture, words directly from the Bible, and the melodies, too in these cantatas, often there were a combination of new and old musics. Most of the music, of course, was newly composed by Bach, but these all-important chorales, if you've ever heard of the four-part chorales, 
that are often at the end of the cantatas, where the entire congregation of people joins in, these chorales used ancient melodies, sometimes written by Martin Luther himself or even older melodies, and Bach would harmonize these melodies into a chorale in his masterful way. They still use these old melodies in churches all over the world, and many of these melodies have become part of our modern culture, believe it or not. If you hear bells ringing in certain churches or even supermarkets, I don't know, around the world, often they are these old melodies that have stuck with us, with humanity. And now with this idea of a mixture of poetry, themes, and melodies, we see with Bach it was somehow his job to assimilate all this and squish it together into a piece of music with several sections lasting between 10 to 30 minutes. Okay, got that? There's an event, we need poetry related to the event, and we have to set all that poetry to music for singers and a band, and it's got to be 10 to 30 minutes, depending on how important the day. So how often did Bach do that? That's the big question. How many cantatas are they? I'll take a step back. I'll take you into the room that I'm recording this in. It's really quite impressive just seeing these books of Bach's music lined up on my shelves. The organ works are some 11 books. The keyboard works, that is everything you know recorded on piano, harpsichord, the Goldberg Variations, the Art of Fugue, both books of the Well-Tempered Clavier, every little prelude and fugue you've tried your hand at, they fill about 15 books. The violin works, the cello suites, amazingly enough, the chaconne, all the chamber music for these instruments in three books. Now, that's already a life right there, just, just going through and learning the pieces in those few books. But the cantatas? 46 books. If you line up these books, the cantatas, on your shelves, you just gawk at the sheer space that these books take up. Now, this was Bach's job. Once in Leipzig, he had to have a cantata ready every week. And during his first few years or so, he was writing a new one every single week. I could easily spend the rest of my life just talking about the cantatas. Anyhow, this is known as a cantata cycle. When Bach was putting together a new cantata for every week within the church year, resulting in, of course, about 50 cantatas. Now, it's generally thought that Bach wrote five cantata cycles. Hence, there are some 250 sacred cantatas. Now, I also mentioned the cantatas not for the church, the secular cantatas for various occasions. We have about 50 of those. So with the sacred cantatas and the secular cantatas, we think that Bach wrote some 300 cantatas, one-sixth of those completely lost. Still, still, we have 250-ish cantatas by Bach. Now, for me, this is one of the big privileges of being alive and with ears, knowing there is all this music Remember in the last episode I was talking about the alien discovering the Brandenburg Concerto? Now, I might go insane if I were that alien after having heard one of the Brandenburg Concerti knowing there were 250 cantatas by the same author and not having access to them. Ah, but we have access to them. This is my big project now, in fact. When I'm away from a piano, I'm overdubbing these cantatas into a computer one by one, getting familiar with them. It's a privilege and an entire education. Okay, so to this specific cantata, a listener wanted me to talk about cantata number 147. So what's the first thing that I do when I encounter a cantata? How do I make sense out of one cantata out of some 300? Just like Bach, I have to find out the occasion. Was it Easter? Was it Christmas? Was it a funeral? Specifically, this cantata was written for the Feast of the Visitation. Now, the Visitation refers to Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, visiting Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John the Baptist. This was a holiday 
celebrated on July 2nd for many years during Bach's lifetime, and everyone would have gone into church that day aware of the story. The congregation probably stood, although if there are any 18th century Lutheran scholars out there, please help me about these details. They probably stood while listening to the story as recounted in the Gospel of Luke. I believe that people, the congregation, stood when the Gospel was read. And on both sides of the sermon, that is before and after the sermon, the music flung forth into the ears on the public of July 2nd, 1723, was this cantata, cantata number 147. Herz und Mund und Tat und Leben, often translated as heart and mouth and deed and life. Now, was this the first time the music was heard in the world? No. As is often the case with Bach cantatas, especially during his first year, he recycled the music from an earlier occasion. Imagine having to write a piece of music this long for an entire orchestra and choir week after week. Meanwhile, you've got like 12 kids or at least seven kids and you have these other pieces of music lying around that you wrote in Weimar about seven years earlier. So you dig out that piece, you dust it off, you bulk up the outer movements, you add a few recitativos, you change the text from a Christmas-based theme to a theme about the visitation and voila, you've got yourself a brand new cantata for your first year as music director. Now that's something like what happened with cantata number 147. In the business, the cantata from which Bach recycled what we know as cantata 147 is known as 147A. That is the prototype that sort of became the cantata that we know, and cantata 147A is lost, but we know about it, so that's how we know it was recycled. Okay, very good. So we've sort of set the scene, but what what is a cantata? What how does how does it work? Well, with big asterisks all over everything, a Bach cantata is typically a big movement at the start, full choir, full orchestra, the most involved music. The orchestra begins, plays a big introduction, and then the choir comes in, usually singing some sort of contrapuntal composition, one voice entering after the other, and the theme of the day is heard, the text sort of setting the scene for whatever might be the story. And then, following the big opening movement, is either an aria, followed by a recitativo, or a recitativo followed by an aria. In any case, these middle movements, the inner movements of the cantata, are variations of this arias for different voices, recitatives for different voices, and then the cantata usually concludes with a chorale. Now, there are, of course, notable exceptions. We might someday cover some of these notable exceptions, but cantata 147 pretty much follows this form. It is a large cantata, this one, number 147, and like the large pieces of vocal music from Bach, it is intended to flank the sermon. That means that on special occasions, holidays, feast days, it breaks into two parts. The first part finishes with the chorale that I mentioned. Then there's the sermon in between. The priest delivers his message. The second part is usually similar structurally to the first part, although here in cantata number 147, we miss, we do not have a large opening movement on the second half. In fact, it delves straight into an aria. So, to recap the entire structure of cantata number 147, a large choral movement at the beginning, then we have a recitativo followed by an aria, followed by a recitativo followed by an aria, and then a chorale. And the chorale is Jesu, Joy of Man's Desiring. That is the first half, and then the second half, very similar, just without the opening movement, we have an aria, a recitativo, an aria, and then another chorale. The chorale on the second half is again, Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring. Sometimes we see that where the two chorales are the same on both ends of the cantata. So in total, we have one large chorale movement 
four arias, three recitativos, and the two choruses, the two chorales. We are certainly going to focus on the large opening movement, maybe two arias, maybe just one, and then of course we have to play the hits, we have to discuss Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring, the chorale, the biggest hit, box number one, baby. And right now, you're listening so let's at least jump into the first movement until the choir begins. We open up the score and we see a bunch of instruments as they appear on the page from top to bottom. Trumpet, two oboes, the two oboes will play in unison this movement, bassoon, and that's it for the wind instruments. Then follow the strings, we have two violin parts, a viola part, and then come the singers, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, and finally on the bottom of the page we have the continuo part. Now that's a collection of instruments playing either just the bass line or harmonies which the bass line implies it would be really interesting to do an entire episode devoted to what a continuo is but when you see that word on the bottom of the score continuo it doesn't mean just one instrument okay here is the J.S. Bach Foundation conducted by Rudolf Lotz one of my idols up until the choir enters <laughs> And the choir enters. Okay, so clearly most prominent is the trumpet, dominating the texture, but a quick orchestration insight into Bach for those composers out there. As is often the case in these heavier orchestrated movements, one hears that the oboes, the two oboes double the first violin part, and the bassoon doubles the bass line, the continual part. And the second violins and violas, well, they're not doubled by anything. They play these independent lines. Now, I typed in this entire cantata into MIDI while preparing this episode, so let's indeed just isolate the viola and the second violins right here at the beginning. So there you have the insides of this texture of this music. It's like uh, the gallbladder or an organ that no one pays attention to, but without it, your system fails. We could hear that same music now with the more recognizable first violin part on top of it. And I could add the bass line here. picks up, and they pick up with the following words, Herz und Mund und Tat und Leben, heart and mouth and deed and life. Now, we will isolate the choir so we can hear just the four vocal parts individually, but to get you into the mind of what it is to sing these Bach parts, to sing Bach's music with nothing but your body. The sopranos, for example, have Herz und Mund und Tat und, and then on the following scale, I won't Try and sing it, it's been a while, but you sing the following notes on just the word Leben, life. You sing. So that's, you know, that's that's the sound. That is the Baroque music sound when you're singing. It's called a melisma. It's a group of notes over just one 
syllable, like Alleluia, and we sing Alle on two notes, but then on Lu, we have just absolute something completely mellifluous. So these are good words to know. Mellifluous and melismatic and melisma. And if we haven't discussed melismas, where but now? We see Bach saying, okay, I will say Herz und Mund und Tat on smaller syllables. Herz, Mund, Tat. But then for Leben, life, this large scale. The choir continues, okay, heart and mouth and deed and life, but, but what about them? Well, they must bear witness to Christ, muss von Christo Zeugnis geben, and how? Without fear or hypocrisy. Now that last word there, that heuchelei, gets translated differently, depending on the translation, but we can agree on hypocrisy here. And Bach will go this entire giant first section of music, of choral music, without moving on to that text. And just at the very end, when he modulates out of C major, the key of this piece, and then into E major, setting up the dominant of the relative minor of A minor, and then you will hear the orchestra sort of come back in and pick up the theme now in a different key. music there is sung by the choir. Just imagine being a part of that ensemble singing and you've got everyone next to you breaking their brains and breaking their bodies trying to get these melismas, trying to hit the tenor voices in the middle of this really complicated fugue. Absolutely thrilling stuff. And then if you heard right toward the end, I'll try and play all the voices here in transposition. We have... That's Gaben. As if we have to give ourselves, we have to give ourselves as witness, as I said in the text. And then this here, the soprano, on the word ona. Ona, what does ona mean? It means without. And of course, here Bach, the tone painter, the word painter, really illustrating that word ona, because here the sopranos sing without anybody else. The first moment in the entire piece, when that word comes up, we have ona, without. And then the music swiftly changes. Here we are in E major, getting ready for the orchestra to come back in and take us to the dark key of A minor. Let's hear that a bit slower in just the vocalists, and then I will play again the Rudolf Lotz recording.
Now, that last little snippet of text there, where the final words uttered in this movement, dass er Gott und Heiland sei, that he is God and our Savior. Now, the orchestra, firmly in A minor, picks up again. Or the same as it was in the very beginning of this movement, but we're fixed in the relative minor. The same key signature as the beginning of the movement, but now our mood is utterly minor. And the idea here is the same at the beginning. If you remember, the trumpet played, which was imitated in canon by the oboes and the first violins. Something like that. And now Bach cleverly does the same thing, but in minor and slightly different, because now the first violins and the oboe will lead the canon, and the second violin, which you saw earlier had an independent line, will be part of the canon, and it sounds something like this. Meanwhile, the trumpet which led the charge at the beginning of the movement is now sort of turned into something like a drum. Just sitting there on this low E. The choir picks up again, sort of singing through the circle of fifths. Herz und Mund und Tat in Leben. Muss. We have to give witness. And then, how to give witness without fear or hypocrisy? Well, now you will hear very strange harmonies. And if one were to hear the music without the text, we'd have to stop and say, okay, what is going on here in the text? Because this music is, quote, without fear and hypocrisy, and we hear Bach writing out fear and hypocrisy. And believe you me, these lines, to sing them, to tune them, very scary. And how better to make the sounds of musical hypocrisy by these modulations which never resolve. It's like Bach thinking. What is a hypocrite? How will I demonstrate a hypocrite in musical terms? Well, someone who acts one way one day and then acts contrary. So maybe this harmony might sound as if it's going to go this way, but then boom, it goes another way. These harmonies are very unreliable. Let's listen to these harmonies here very slowly. As you heard the music there resolving to something familiar, something that harmonically finally made sense to us, of course the words are no longer fear and hypocrisy, but das er Gott und Heiland sei, that he is God and our Savior, and we are assured by the soothing tones of the subdominant. F major, we are now comfortably on our four chord, very close to home, and we begin the fugal stuff we heard at the beginning. But now it's from bottom to top. 
first in the basses, then in the tenors, then in the altos, then the sopranos, and we go through a wonderful four-part fugue involving the entire orchestra, and before you know it, we've somehow landed back in C major and repeat, essentially, the first section again. Let's hear it from the fugue. There, as it modulates back into our familiar C major, the orchestra picks up the opening tune. That is the last utterance of the choir that we heard, and so the orchestra carries us home for the first movement. Now, I will play in its entirety the first movement as conducted by Josh Rifkin. Now, Rifkin is a very influential man. Did I say Josh Rifkin? It's possibly impolite. Joshua Rifkin, excuse me. Mr. Rifkin, I really want you on my show. He is a wonderful conductor, keyboard player, put forth a theory which is gaining more traction over the years that Bach's vocal music was only sung with one person per part, which I absolutely love, this idea that pieces, giant pieces like the St. Matthew Passion, the Mass in B minor, were only sung with one person per part. When we listen to Rifkin's version of this first movement of Cantata 147, we get to hear this intimate sound. Also very interesting is that Mr. Rifkin, besides Bach, a great proponent of Scott Joplin and ragtime music, and he's an absolute master of both genres. So imagine that, ragtime and cantata time. Mr. Rifkin, I'm a big admirer of yours. Thank you. 
That's the end of the first movement, and now the story begins. Here's the first recitativo. We're going to tell the story now of the visitation, but in interest of keeping this episode to an acceptable length, I'm going to jump to the second part of the cantata after the sermon, which begins with a tenor aria. Now, I want to focus on this aria because of a word painting technique that Bach employs. Word painting is when Bach illustrates with music what a word means. So fleeing, he might have a particularly fleeing gesture or stomping or laughter or weeping. He has different musical motifs to illustrate, to paint these words. The orchestration in this aria is very simple. We have two bass lines essentially doubling one another. One plays eighth notes. And that essentially outlines the structure of the line. And the other line plays the same line, but in a more detailed version with 16th note triplets. That's three notes to every one note in the other line. And then the tenor is on top of that. Now this, that motif has words to it. Hilf, Jesu, Hilf. Help, Jesus, help. Let's try and get in the mind of Bach. He gets the text from the poet. Help, Jesus, help, so that I may know you in good and in pain, in joy and in sorrow, that I may call you my savior in faith and in calmness, that my heart is always with your love burning, that my heart is always burning with your love. So we think, ah, in wohl und weh, in goodness and in pain, in freud und leid, in, in joy and sorrow. So you know that when, when he comes to the word weh, when he comes to the word uh, misfortune or, or sorrow, there's going to be something that happens. And of course, the last word, burning, right? So that my heart may always be burning with your love. You know that something absolutely interesting is going to happen. How is Bach going to set the word burning on fire musically? So let's begin. Thank you. 
Okay, that is the first stanza, that is the first phrase we could say. Now Bach's arias are usually like this. The band plays and then the singer comes in, often with the same sentiment, striking up the same tune. They will sing a few lines of the text. So far we've only had, help Jesus so that I may know you, so that I may confess you, we could say. Also a translation. And we've modulated to a different key, and now new text is to follow. This will be the text about well and ve, as in oi ve. Freud und Leid, as in joy and sorrow. Now watch Bach play with these words, joy and sorrow, well and vey. Absolutely brilliant. Did you hear how the music completely changed when those words entered? You may have also heard the harmonies change to this sound on the word ve that's diminished. On that word ve and Freud und Leid, joy and sorrow, Bach is just playing with the music, playing with the chords. Anyhow, now we've had the second phrase and we've modulated to, to A minor. And now we have the third stanza and a new line of text, and that is so that I may call you my savior. Now on that word savior, highland, we have our first melisma, a long one. Bach sees the word savior in the poem and he thinks that deserves more than only a few notes. How about, well, I haven't counted here. How about, looks like over 40, looks like 50, 50 something notes, 50 something notes on the word savior. Let's hear this third phrase. Okay, so that is the third phrase, and that big long ah sound, that's all the word savior. Remarkable how Bach draws so much music from just one word. And now, with one last stroke of brilliant word painting, he will illustrate this word burning, so that my heart may, with your love, always be burning. But how is Bach going to set this word? Well, in the solo voice, so far we've had eighth notes and sixteenth notes, but nothing like those sixteenth note triplets that have characterized the entire accompaniment part, this stuff. So Bach here, obviously, in the climax of this little aria, will burn like bebop, and that tenor is going to join the sixteenth note triplets of the accompaniment, and, well, we have this.
Every aria in Bach, I would say, is like that. Every little aria, every recitativo, there is something that Bach is playing with the words. He is the ultimate word painter. And speaking of words, if you're wondering how those words that I might call you my savior, that my heart is burning with your love, all this sort of generic sounding Christian poetry, how that specifically relates to this feast day. Well, it's a bit vague. Again, this is a recycled cantata, so it's very possible that cantata 147a, the prototype, used the same words for these arias, but definitely something that is new and unique is the following recitativo. Now, I'm not going to play the music I suppose I'll play the music, sure, I'll play the music, but I will at least read what is going on, what the alto is saying, so that we have some idea how this relates to the Feast of the Visitation. The miraculous hand of the Almighty works in the secret places of the earth. John, that's John the Baptist, must be filled with the Spirit, and the bond of love draws him already in his mother's body, so that he recognizes the Savior, even though he could not yet name him with his mouth. I like that. This is the, the image of John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth, and he recognizes Jesus already, even though he is inside of uh, Elizabeth. He is moved. He leaps and jumps while Elizabeth declares the miracle, while Mary's mouth brings the offering of lips. If you, believer, note the weakness of the flesh, and if your hearts burn with love, and if your mouth does not confess the Savior, it is God who powerfully strengthens you. He will stir up the power of your spirit, and indeed he will place thanks and praise on your tongues. Well, now I have to actually play the music because I am reminded of, again, a wonderful word-painting technique, that image of John the Baptist, the not-yet-born John the Baptist, leaping in the womb of Elizabeth is very explicitly word-painted, you will hear the two oboes in this accompanied recitative that is a storytelling that is slightly accompanied by some instruments as opposed to our usual recitativos, which are just a continual and the vocal part. You will hear this unborn John the Baptist leaping in the womb of Elizabeth uh, while the oboes play these staccato figures in arpeggios. <laughs> John. The image right there of John the Baptist leaping inside of Elizabeth's womb, illustrated by Bach. Let's hear that one more time. so on the rest it goes and after this text is recited after it is recitatived we have one final aria for bass and then as it was at the close of part one is now at the close of part two a chorale and this my friends is Jesu joy of man's desiring this is this piece 
Let's just loop the bass line here as I play, as I speak over it, rather. Now, typically Bach chorales at the end of these cantatas are sung in four parts, with the instruments doubling the singer's part. Now, this is what we call a four-part chorale, and they are exquisite. If you want to learn how to read music, or if you want to unlock the secrets of the innermost depths of harmony, you open the same book. Book. I do that all the time. The four-part chorales of Bach. And there are hundreds of these four-part chorales. Now, this chorale that we have here is less typical in that it is embellished. The orchestra does not simply double the singers. Between the phrases of the chorale, we have connecting passages supplied by the orchestra. The orchestra plays, and then the voices sing a short sentence, and the orchestra plays some more, and then the choir sings another sentence, and on and on until it's over. That's what we call a chorale prelude. I think I used the same metaphor in the last episode, but the metaphor is better suited to describe the chorale prelude in that we're on a boat moving between islands, and the water is the flowing music which connects us to the bits of the chorale, which are the islands, floating one after the other in the distance. Now, I mentioned at the beginning, often the chorales and the cantatas used ancient melodies, and here is no exception. This melody, Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring, was composed by Johann Schopp. S-C-H-O-P, who died in 1644. Bach was born in 1685, for reference. And the stanzas of text set by Bach are by Martin Jahn in 1661. So Bach combined both old melody and this somewhat old text into this piece that English speakers call Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring. In German, they call this Jesu bleibet meine Freude, Jesus remains my joy. But this English translation, Jesu joy of man's desiring, is apparently from the English poet laureate Robert Bridges, who was poet laureate of England from 1913 to 1930. He spent a lot of time working on hymns, as we call them today, or these chorale melodies, translating them out of foreign languages into English, and in fact, this German, Jesu bleibet meine Freude, becomes syllable by syllable, Jesu joy of man's desiring. And this work is so beautiful, really is. Though, for all its history, for perhaps being the best-known piece of Bach, for it being in little wind-up music boxes and souvenir shops all over the world, I must say, I don't think it's any more beautiful than any of the other chorale preludes, which is, I suppose, saying two things. Firstly, that it's not that it isn't beautiful, but that everything else he wrote has the same quality of beauty that this piece has, and therefore, secondly, it's through circumstance that this piece has become as famous as it is today. But how? How did that happen? Well, probably through Myra Hess, Dame Myra Hess, an English pianist who made this famous piano transcription of the work. I think I'll probably end this episode with her playing her own transcription of Jesu Joy. And to list all the pianists and the performance history of just her transcription of this work would be its own episode. I seem to recall, but I can't really remember, a legend that one famous pianist ended all his recitals with this Myra Hess transcription of Jesu Joy. But not only Myra Hess transcribed it, and not only for piano, this piece is transcribed for every instrument or every combination of instruments. It's on Wendy Carlos's album, Switched on Bach. I'm just now reading the list of people who covered it on Wikipedia. George Winston, Andrea Bocelli apparently sang this in 2019 with Jennifer Garner. Apollo 100, The Move. Of course, my favorite transcription of this is the Beach Boys. I would put the Beach Boys transcription of Yesu Joy of Man's Desiring here were it not that I don't really have the license to do that. So I want you to look up Lady Linda, L-Y-N-D-A, Lady Linda by the Beach Boys, 1979. They use that melody at the top. I think they sing Lady Linda. 
something like that. And right now, I'll just play for you the four-part chorale. In other words, what the vocalists sing before I give you the water that connects these islands. There we have it. That is the top line composed by Schopp earlier than Bach, and then Bach would have harmonized that melody with the parts below the soprano line. Okay, now let's break this down bit by bit because I'm going to give you all of the parts before I give you this. Just so that we could see how this famous, because this is really the famous melody, how that famous bit of Bach got harmonized and had a foundation. So what we're hearing right now are the second violins and the viola providing sort of the guts of the texture. And now here the choir would come in, but instead I'll just show you the bass line, because all this music is going to repeat a second time. Now here we have the violins and the violas, the second violins that is, and the bass. Here, that's the choir. Now this is the second time through, imagine. That's sort of the end of the first section. Here we're coming up on the next island. we've launched into a different key area, A minor. Here we go to yet another place. C major. Back to the beginning. Resting on the dominant pedal point, D, and here we are, the last phrase. This pedal point held in the basses. Music is suspended here. And then it winds up again. Okay, I'm going to actually loop this music. We're going to hear it exactly again, but I'm going to take out the choir and give you the famous melody. There, 
that's that's the famous melody. Here the choir would be singing. The melody comes in again. good to repeat just that line here in the famous melody, the first violin part. Here it is. Notice how it eludes us right here. That interesting phrasing that I'm using there is Baroque violin bow phrasing. It is marked that way in the score. Okay, here it is now with the rest of the instruments, except the choir still. There's really nothing else I could or should say about this iconic work of art. I'm going to play for you the Rudolf Lultz version of this with the entire orchestra and choir so you could hear how all these parts interlock together. Then I will play you Myra Hess's piano transcription. Thank you to the listener who suggested this cantata. It's a 30-minute work of music, so my apologies for really skimming over this, but I hope that at least you've got some idea about what the construction of a cantata is and at least some idea of why this particular cantata was written and perhaps how it became that iconic piece of music that is, like I say, heard in souvenir shops and grocery stores. Here's Lultz and the J.S. Bach Foundation.
Now here's Dame Myra Hess playing her famous transcription, perhaps the transcription that made this the famous work of art as we know it today. Thanks for listening. Season two, keep it coming. Podcast your high school your high school orchestra teacher orchestra teacher share this podcast with your middle school band teacher share this podcast with the guy who sat next to you and played saxophone in the sixth grade didn't you always want to be a patron 
Haven't you always wanted to be called a patron, somebody who supports art and culture and music? Well, you can do that with the WTF Bach podcast. Support on PayPal, Cash App, or Venmo. You can find all relevant links in the episode description. You should write us, and you should write us often at Bach at WTFBach.com. We would like to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening to the WTF Bach podcast.